Hi, and welcome to the Law Notes episode of the Legal LGBT Podcast. I'm Eric Lesh, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar of New York. On today's episode, we have three very different cases to discuss, really a potpourri of cases. Think of this as your eclectic summer mixtape. The first case that we're going to talk about is the federal district court ruling in Montana holding that the state violated the Constitution by forcing a gay man to register as a sex offender for consensual sex. Second case is a challenge to Virginia's exclusion of coverage for gender-confirming care under its Medicaid and state employee health insurance programs. And finally, we are going to talk about an outrageous appellate court ruling that prisoners have no privacy interest in their HIV information. It's a great series of cases, and with us, as always, is Professor Art Leonard, chief editor and writer of LGBT Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal developments here and abroad. But before we get into the substance, I want to take this opportunity to really encourage you, if you're not already a member of the LGBT Bar Association of New York or Legal, to please take a moment and renew your dues or become a member today. It is the strength of our membership that makes Legal not only the oldest LGBTQ bar association, but one of the largest and most active in the country. It's the way that we pay for our free legal services that we've been offering for three decades, since the height of the HIV AIDS crisis. Today, through our virtual clinic that happens online, our clinic that's going to reopen very soon out of the LGBT Center, and our 24-hour helpline, we serve over 2,000 low-income LGBTQ New Yorkers every single year. And of course, if you're listening to this podcast, you know this is the way that we are able to provide this podcast and, of course, LGBT Law Notes. Uh, please take some time to become a member, join a committee, get involved. We are your bar association. You are legal. You can join us by visiting www.lgbtbarny.org. Now, let's dig in. Hi, Art. How are you doing? Okay. Okay. Pride Month. Happy Pride Month. And we've got summer starting in a few weeks and uh, New York is already sweltering. It's sweltering, but it's wet. Yeah. I mean, we're just drenched. I did all this planting and all my flowers are drowning. (laughs) Well, at least they have enough water. (laughs) You know, in some parts of the country, we have magnum drought and forest fires. So do you have any summer travel plans? Only the Glimmerglass Opera Festival up in Cooperstown, New York. That's lovely. I'm so glad you're going to get to see some live opera again. Um, All right, let's dig right in. We have a ton of cases uh, to talk about really interesting stuff. And um, I have to say, I think the theme is that all of these really get under my skin. Um, Not that they all come out the wrong way, but the underlying issues in all of these are really um, hard to grapple with and really uh, set me off. So let's start with one of the very first ones. Um, So Lawrence v. Texas was the historic ruling from the Supreme Court striking down state sodomy laws as an unconstitutional deprivation of liberty. And that came down in 2003. Today, we're going to talk about a recent case that has its roots in the pre-Lawrence world of 1994, when an 18-year-old named Randall Mangus was convicted of 
for having sexual consensual sex with two 16-year-old boys when he and they were living in a foster program in a ranch in Idaho. The conviction was under Idaho's Crimes Against Nature statute, and as you would be right to think, he would not have committed that crime had it been with a 16-year-old female. He served seven years in prison, and Randall is now in his mid-40s, and upon moving to Montana, he was told that he must register as a sex offender because of his conviction. He challenged this decision in federal court on due process and equal protection grounds. Art, tell us about the facts of this case and the issues and what happened. Okay, actually, uh, he had been a resident in this foster program on a ranch in Idaho, uh, he was 18 at the time he had sex with these boys, but he had very recently become 18. And once he's 18, he's aged out of the foster system, but he stayed on as an employee. So he was an 18-year-old employee. They were 16-year-old boys. Uh, by all accounts, it was consensual sex, but uh, there was uh, a complaint about it. And he pled guilty under the Idaho Crime Against Nature statute. And uh, it wasn't because of the age of the boys. It was because all gay sex was illegal in Idaho at the time. Uh, and uh, if you apply Lawrence versus Texas retroactively, obviously he was convicted for conduct that would be protected because 16 was the age of consent in Idaho at the time. Uh, and uh, also uh, Idaho, like many places, uh, treated sex between uh, boys and girls differently from sex between boys and boys. And so if he had had sex with a 16-year-old girl at that time in those circumstances, he would not have been prosecuted. Sounds like your equal protection violation right there. But uh, the point is that he was convicted of a crime and it was an unconstitutional conviction. But it wasn't until 2003 in Lawrence that the Supreme Court said it was unconstitutional. Since the Supreme Court was ruling under the 14th Amendment, and the 14th Amendment was adopted in 1867, that means, you know, it is retroactive in that sense. It's, it's not that they were inventing a new right. It's they were recognizing an existing right that hadn't previously been recognized. I mean, that's great, but he still served seven years in prison. He served seven years. He, he had to uh, register as a sex offender in Idaho. When he moved to Montana, Montana law provides that somebody who is a registered sex offender in another jurisdiction who moves to Montana must register as a sex offender in Montana. And so he filed suit. I mean, he was required to register and now he's filing suit to get the registration requirement rescinded for him. Uh, and uh, the case is before Judge Dana Christensen of U.S. District Court in Montana, who was appointed to the bench by Barack Obama. Lucky, lucky for Mr. Menges. Uh, so Christensen uh, points out, he says, uh, Montana's registration requirement has unsurprisingly had a negative impact on Menchie's life. And his decision describes how this requirement cost Menchie's employment opportunities. It deprived him of beds in homeless shelters at a time when he was homeless. He was turned away because he was a registered sex offender. Uh, an article about the case was published in the New York Times and Menchie's detailed his, his uh, suicidal ideation over the years because he was shunned socially and economically due to the registration requirement. So he obviously has standing to challenge it. He has been adversely affected. Uh, I mean, 
courts at various times have said a registration requirement is not a criminal penalty. It's a civil thing. And uh, so there was some questioning as to whether someone uh, can claim uh, a violation of their rights uh, under the 14th Amendment. Uh, but more and more courts have been coming around to the view that the uh, disadvantages imposed on people by having to register means that there should be a much closer scrutiny of the reason why they're being required to register. Uh, so in this case, uh, Judge Christensen rules in favor of Menchie's. One, the state said that he shouldn't be allowed to bring this challenge because he should first have to go back to Idaho and get his sentence vacated and get his registration requirements in Idaho vacated. Uh, but uh, the judge said, no, he, he doesn't have to wait for that. The harms he is suffering, the ongoing harms he is suffering are too great in this situation. Uh, and so he says, violates his rights of due process, violates his rights of equal protection. And furthermore, the Montana Constitution has a very strong expressed right of privacy. Montana being, although it's very, generally seen as a rather conservative state, a very libertarian streak in yeah. their constitution. Uh, so on all three grounds, uh, the court finds that there is a violation of his constitutional rights. However, since the state decided to appeal to the Ninth Circuit, uh, there is a stay. So he remains registered for now, uh, pending argument in the Ninth Circuit. Who knows how it's going to go in the Ninth Circuit. The Ninth Circuit used to be a pretty reliable liberal circuit, but Trump loaded it up. I mean, about a third of the judges in the Ninth Circuit are Trump appointees. Fascinating case and uh, a really good um, you know, issue that we haven't really spoken about, an opportunity to um, look back during Pride Month on Lawrence v. Texas, which is such a consequential decision, really giving uh, LGBT people the the tools that they need to make claims going forward by recognizing their right to intimate uh, uh, associations and privacy. All right. It, it was, you know, at the time Lawrence was decided, I said, okay, LGBT law is over. This is the end. <laughs> We've won it. But no, it, it took a while. We had to get marriage equality. And there are a few other things along the way. But uh, Lawrence gets cited in just about all these cases. One, one reason or another. Uh, I do think we should give credit in the podcast to the contributing writers of Law Notes when we discuss the cases they wrote up. This was written up by Matt Goodwin, who is an attorney here in New York City. Well, let's go ahead and take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about that Fourth Circuit ruling that I mentioned, where we have an appellate court actually holding that there's no privacy right to an individual prisoner's HIV information. All right, we're back. Next up is a sweeping ruling from the Fourth Circuit holding that a prison inmate has no privacy interest in disclosure of his HIV status to prison officials. This case arose from an inmate's claim for violation of privacy when his attending physician remarked that he had not been taking his HIV medication within hearing of other inmates, staff, and civilians, thereby revealing his HIV status to others. Art, tell us about this sweeping ruling and why it's so out of the mainstream. Okay, first thing to note is that the three-judge panel in the Fourth Circuit uh, consists of two judges appointed by President Trump and one judge appointed by President Obama. 
And to me, the big puzzle in this case is why the judge appointed by President Obama didn't dissent, or at least concur narrowly. Uh, because uh, this decision by uh, the opinion written by Judge Julius Richardson, who uh, is a Trump appointee, and uh, you know, it's interesting. I look up these judges to try to read about their backgrounds. And uh, he very conveniently joined the Federalist Society in 2017. Uh, you know, he was interested in becoming a federal judge. So he joined the Federalist Society in 2017 after Trump took office because that was a prerequisite uh, for many people for being appointed. Uh, and then he was uh, appointed to the court, uh, Fourth Circuit, by Donald Trump. And he writes this sweeping opinion. Uh, and uh, this, this case was written up for us by Bill Rold, who is our associate editor who covers all the inmate litigation cases. And Bill was like outraged. About this one, he he sent me a uh, an email when I sent him the opinion. He said, uh, "Well, this is like you know the Trump judges are out there wrecking the Constitution." So uh, the issue isn't whether prison officials have a right to know whether an inmate is HIV positive. They obviously do, prison officials. But fellow inmates, I mean, this is this is a case where a prison doctor revealed. Uh, although, of course, they were, he was, perhaps he wasn't intending to reveal it to other inmates who happened to be present because this was in the medical infirmary. You know, he's at the patient's bed and he says, you haven't been taking your HIV meds. And that's within hearing of other inmates and uh, possibly other, other people who didn't have a right to hear. Uh, and this is inconsistent with decisions in several other circuits. I mean, Bill did a rundown on it uh, here. He said numerous federal circuits have held to the contrary, uh, that uh, in fact, revealing someone's HIV status to people who do not have a right to know can give rise uh, when the revealing is done by a government employee, in this case, a prison doctor, it can give rise to constitutional privacy violations. And the cases that Judge Richardson relies upon for rejecting this privacy claim are Fourth Amendment search and seizure cases, mainly. They're not cases arising under the uh, liberty aspect of due process. And, you know, part of this is the general hostility of conservative judges to substantive due process and who are generally hostile to the idea that there's a right of privacy in the Constitution since the Constitution doesn't have the word privacy. That's a matter of interpretation. But starting with Griswold, uh, the Supreme Court, a majority of the Supreme Court endorsed the idea that there is a right of privacy inherent in the liberty protected by the due process clause. Uh, now the court, Supreme Court stopped using the term privacy in this connection uh, over the course of time, in, especially in the, uh, in the abortion cases where the court switched the terminology to liberty instead of privacy. And you see that in Lawrence versus Texas, where Lawrence versus Texas, where Bowers versus Hardwick was overruled. At the time Bowers versus Hardwick was argued back in the 1980s, they were talking in terms of privacy. The claim was that the Georgia sodomy law violated the privacy rights of Michael Hardwick. Uh, but uh, today we would say liberty. And in Lawrence versus Texas, Justice Kennedy doesn't mention privacy. Uh, although uh, clearly, it, uh, when you look at the cases he cites as precedent, they are, many of them are cases in which the Supreme Court did speak in terms of privacy. 
uh, and lower federal courts continue to use the term privacy from time to time in this connection. Uh, so the idea that someone's medical information is not private. I mean, the court had also been faced with an argument that under HIPAA, there was a, a claim, but uh, there is no private right of action under HIPAA. HIPAA is a regulatory statute. Uh, it's, it's enforced through federal agencies, not through private lawsuits. Uh, so the court dismissed that part of the claim. Uh, the, uh, the case was filed by uh, the inmate pro se, uh, and he lost at the district court. And when he appealed to the Fourth Circuit, the panel actually appointed counsel. They assigned counsel to argue on his behalf in the Fourth Circuit. So this was an argued case. They weren't going to have a prison inmate come in and argue a case in the Court of Appeals, especially one who was HIV positive. Uh, and you have to understand that because uh, Judge Richardson, part of what uh, outraged Bill Rolled about Judge Richardson's opinion was uh, that he seemed not to understand that HIV is only transmissible through blood exposure or sexual activity. Uh, and he, he, he compared it to other diseases like COVID, which are transmitted obviously through, uh, through respiration, through the air, through droplets in the air. And, uh, well, that's just outrageous, and this whole thing is a mess. No reasonable expectation of privacy at all with respect to medical information uh, with the Fourth Circuit. Uh, they're out of step with the other circuits here. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm very surprised about the, uh, the liberal on this panel, as you mentioned, and I'm also wondering if this has any application outside of the inmate context. I mean, you know, with, with folks who are maybe court involved and in a court case and the attorney or judge discloses the HIV status, what, what impact does it have outside of an inmate uh, prison setting? I don't know. The language is pretty sweeping. There's no reasonable expectation, but it is... He, I think it is very much premised on the fact that it's in prison, that, that, uh, that prisoners have a very limited right to privacy generally. Uh, under the Fourth Amendment, uh, the, uh, the prison staff has a right to search their cell at any time they want to. They have a right to strip search them to see if they've got contraband. I mean, privacy, there isn't a whole lot of privacy in prison. The judge is right as to that. But when it comes to medical information, many, many circuits uh, and uh, the uh, the string site that we're given here by by Bill Rolls, uh, the Third Circuit, the Second Circuit, the Tenth Circuit, the Fifth Circuit, the Sixth Circuit. Uh, one point that, that Judge Richmond makes in his uh, Richardson makes in his decision, he says the Supreme Court has never expressly held directly on point that inmates have a Fourteenth Amendment privacy right against disclosure of their medical information to other inmates. They have assumed without deciding in particular cases that there is a right of privacy, but they haven't directly held. And therefore, there's nothing that binds us, he says. But uh, this, this seems to be a pretty much of a tin air decision. And uh, the problem is, all right, these are appointed counsel, assigned counsel. I don't know what they're getting paid, but they're certainly not getting paid what you would need uh, to undertake a, an on-bank and then an appeal to the Supreme Court. And do we really want the Supreme Court as currently constituted to decide this issue? Why do you think that no uh, bigger advocacy group got involved in the litigation here when it got to the Court of Appeals? Maybe they were unaware of it. You know, this is one of the problems with inmate litigation. 
a lot mean, of it flies under the radar. Uh, in fact, Law Notes, uh, Law Notes is, is unusual in devoting so much attention to it, but right. because LGBT inmates and HIV positive inmates you know, have so many issues and there's so much litigation there, but it tends to fly under the radar. A lot of the decisions are by magistrate judges and never even get to a district court level in terms of a, a full-blown opinion. Uh, a lot of the opinions that are published in these cases at the trial level are not officially reported. I mean, they, they're picked up by Westlaw or Lexis if the judge issues a written opinion, but they're not officially reported, so they can't be cited as precedent. And sometimes even the Court of Appeals decisions are not officially reported. Uh, so they tend to fly under the radar. We've actually be, been contacted by an organization that does a newsletter for prisoners about their rights. So they want to uh, have a, a deal worked out with us for them to uh, to pick up uh, a lot of our coverage and distribute it to inmates because uh, there are a lot of inmates trying to represent themselves who don't have it. Most of this inmates litigation is pro se at, this, at the outset. And I mean, they, they have access to a law library, although it tends to be limited access. Right. Uh, and it's not electronic access. They actually have to have to use books. And I know the lawyers and law students on our call say, what books? Legal research in books? Who does that? But, uh, you know, it's it's this is rare and valuable information for them. Right. Uh, so we may always impact um, the most marginalized folks, the most vulnerable on issues that are that are about liberty and, and life and death and many issues. And so the idea that Bill Roll covers this so well, that Law Notes brings light to this, we could certainly have a podcast on criminal legal issues all on its own, just from the work that comes out of, of Law Notes. All right, let's take a short break, and when we come back, we'll talk about the challenge to West Virginia's blanket ban on gender confirmation surgery and the class action challenging it. Great, we're back. West Virginia is one of the states with a blanket exclusion of coverage for gender confirming care under West Virginia's Medicaid and state employee health insurance plans. The case that we're talking about now uh, is a federal class action suit brought by Lambda Legal alleging that trans and non-binary residents are denied coverage for essential and sometimes life-saving gender-confirming care. Lambda Legal has filed several lawsuits against other states with blanket exclusions, including in Alaska and North Carolina. We probably talked about some of them on this podcast, certainly in Law Notes. Art, talk to us about this challenge to West Virginia's uh, exclusionary policy. Okay, uh, and credit where credit is due. The article for Law Notes is written by Joseph Hayes Rockman, one of our contributing writers, who's a student at New York Law School and a former intern at Legal. Uh, and, uh, so this is uh, two cases that have sort of been consolidated together. One challenges the Medicaid exclusion. The other challenges the exclusion under the insurance program for state employees. So the uh, plaintiff, uh, Christopher Fain, in the Medicaid is challenging uh, the West Virginia Department of Health and Human Resources Bureau for Medical Services, which runs the Medicaid program. They have a Medicaid policy manual. The policy manual says no, uh, no transgender health care is covered, basically. Uh, and uh, this, this came to light when he was receiving 
uh, hormones and his pharmacy told him that he can't get coverage for the hormones under the Medicaid program. Uh, and so he's claiming that discriminatory policies violate the Equal Protection Clause, uh, the Non-Discrimination Clause under Section 1557 of the Affordable Care Act, which forbids sex discrimination and uh, which uh, now is interpreted since the Bostock case in covering uh, gender identity discrimination. And uh, also under the Medicaid Act's availability and comparability requirements, which basically requires uh, Medicaid programs to cover medically necessary treatments. Uh, and uh, so there's, there's an argument, uh, is hormone treatment for transgender people medically necessary treatment? Uh, and uh, the lawsuit was being opposed on a motion uh, to, uh, to dismiss uh, on non-substantive grounds as far as the Medicaid program goes. Uh, there was a claim of 11th Amendment immunity. Uh, there was a claim of standing. Uh, they, they claimed that he should have appealed the denial of the treatment. Uh, and uh, one thing that happened, uh, they, they, they woke up when this case was filed against them, probably because he didn't file an appeal or something. They woke up and they said, oh, well, we're going to reconsider. They filed an affidavit stating that henceforth we will cover hormones. So hormones have dropped out of the case. And uh, now it's that he can't get uh, surgery, a gender confirmatory surgery. Uh, and they're, they're hanging tough on that. And they're claiming since he never requested it, he was still at the hormone treatment stage, he doesn't have standing. And so what's important here is uh, Judge Chambers, Robert C. Chambers, who was a Clinton appointee, and was the former chief judge of the uh, of the district court, uh, Chambers says no, that would be futile because the uh, Medicaid policy manual says that it's not covered. And they say, but look, we we covered his hormones, even though the manual says that's not covered. And he said, okay, file an affidavit saying you're going to cover the surgery, and now this was the case. <laughs> because what the plaintiffs are looking for is basically injunctive relief here, uh, and they're looking for class certification. And they said, oh, you know, you shouldn't certify a class here. He says, well, we're not going to dismiss this case at this point. Uh, you know, you may need to have some discovery about class certification to see. Uh, but I think the judge is likely to, to find that there is a common question of law or fact that affects enough people out there in West Virginia that individual joinder would uh, be unlikely. Uh, so that we probably have enough people to make up a class on that. Uh, on the uh, public employees, uh, we have a, uh, a public employee here uh, who is uh, uh, Brian McNamara. McNamara is an accountant at a West Virginia State Psychiatric Hospital. And McNamara is married to Zachary Martell, a transgender man uh, who uh, started hormone replacement therapy, but is being denied uh, gender uh, confirmatory surgery. Uh, according to the, uh, to the complaint, Martell uses a binder to avoid the distress and embarrassment of being incorrectly identified as female, needs to have top surgery. And it's being denied because the state insurance plan excludes coverage for a bilateral mastectomy when it is for the purpose of gender confirmation. 
That is, they'll cover mastectomies that are for the purpose of dealing with breast cancer, but not when it's for dealing with gender transition from female to male. Uh, so, so there's a suit there, and uh, obviously, uh, this is uh, primarily under the uh, Affordable Care Act. And uh, there were questions about immunity in this case, uh, which the court finds, no, these are both programs uh, where there's some federal money involved, where there's federal regulation involved, and uh, where the state is not immune from suit in these cases. Uh, the motion to dismiss on the uh, state employee insurance case argued that there's no equal protection claim on the merits here and argues that uh, to the extent there's gender identity discrimination, it's a rational basis case and we have a rational basis for excluding this and Chambers just sort of laughed at them. You can, you can, you can hear the laughter echoing through the opinion. He <laughs> uh, said, now just a minute, heightened scrutiny here, heightened scrutiny, but even if this was a rational basis case, I don't think the, uh, the grounds that they're citing add up to a rational basis for treating men and women differently when it comes to the surgery. And, you know, he's going to accept the idea that a transgender man is a man, and therefore you have sex discrimination here. It's heightened scrutiny when you have sex discrimination. I think we're, we're getting it. It is becoming reasonably well established, at least at the district court level and, and several courts of appeals, that we have heightened scrutiny when we have a government program that discriminates against transgender people. Uh, we don't have total buy-in on this. Uh, we actually had another case uh, reported in this issue of Law Notes, which we're not going to go into detail on, but uh, our old friends at the Fifth Circuit, uh, or our old enemies at the Fifth Circuit, uh, who, say a, who say a transgender person can't bring a Title VII claim unless they can show a comparator, a non-transgender person who is treated differently. Uh, that's crazy. Which I've is crazy. Heard that before, crazy. yeah. With yeah. comparing, yeah. We have I mean, to separate out the class and compare yeah. it to other members of the class. Yeah, but but for for you know, uh, at the stage of a motion to dismiss, you don't need a comparator. At the stage of a motion to dismiss, you just need to allege facts sufficient to draw an inference that someone's gender identity was a reason for the adverse. Uh, situation they faced in that case. And there was stuff in that case. But the court said there wasn't a stuff, enough stuff to nudge it over the line. And they, they had some rather sweeping language, uh, once again, from a Trump-appointed judge, sweeping language saying, no, you need a comparator to bring a Title VII case. Uh, so what can we do? But to the extent that we have any ruling on the merits here, we have at least a rejection by Judge Chambers in the West Virginia case of the claim that you can't bring an equal protection claim uh, to challenge uh, the exclusion of gender confirmation surgery from coverage under the insurance provided to state employees and their spouses. Mm -hmm. These two guys are married to each other. Yeah. And their marriage is recognized. You know, that's, we do live in a different world than before Windsor and before uh, Obergefell, don't we? <laughs> We sure do. And who knows how that world will change with a new Supreme Court majority and new cases coming down the pike any day now. Um, but yes, we certainly do. Um, and uh, you've been covering it th through it all. Um, and uh, we thank you for that. I'm proud of your work, Art, during Pride Month, and I know many are. 
Um, you you want an of note to uh, to end on a, on a positive note? <laughs> You're like, yeah, yeah. Thanks for the accolades. I'm, I've got one more case. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And this is a, another contributing writer, Dave Escato, one of my right, students. But I'm not going to congratulate you and tell you I'm proud of you again at the end of the episode. This is it. Okay, okay. So, 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 so David Escato, who is who just graduated from New York Law School, so he's now he's busily studying for the bar, but he managed to get this case written up for me and he he even has a case well this is the forthcoming issue of law notes all right so he actually wrote this up after his finals but before he started his bar review uh so this involves the utah supreme court and the, as soon as i say utah supreme court you're going to say oh oh my god what have they done to us now utah supreme court well the utah supreme court in a four to one decision announced a standard by which courts to review petitions for sex change on birth certificates going forward. The decision makes clear that transgender individuals in Utah can amend their birth certificates and other documents to reflect their gender identity. Woohoo! Uh, but uh, as Dave points out, there is a scathing dissenting opinion here that says, just a minute, the statute doesn't expressly authorize this. And furthermore, uh, a birth certificate is a record of sex at birth. And so uh, biological men should be identified as men. Biological women should be identified as women. That can't change. This is a record, blah, 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 blah. Uh, but that was a dissent. So, you know, we have a four-member majority, and uh, they rebuked the dissent uh, for its arguments. Is it just a five-member court? So it was yeah, one? Yeah, five-member court. Utah, Utah is a relatively small Supreme state Supreme Court. They still get two senators, though. <laughs> they still get two senators, no matter how few people they have. Oh, wow. Art, that uh, is a really good way to end and a great way to celebrate Pride Month. Um, thank you so much. This was the pleasure. Okay. See you next month. Well, we might see you sooner. Right. <laughs> All right. Bye. And thank you so much for listening. Obviously, what I was referencing there is that any day now, we could get a decision from the Supreme Court in Fulton v. City of Philadelphia. This could have major implications for LGBTQ rights and give big carve-outs for religious discriminators who want to turn people away simply for who they are. And we are going to be out with a same-day, decision day, episode of the podcast as we always do when there's an important supreme court decision so please check us out that day we'll be sending it around to all of the lgbt bar association of new york's members in our member list so again if you are not a member of the lgbt bar association of new york please join today we want you thank you so much for listening and we'll be back soon happy pride <laughs>